This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'm Brittany Luce, and you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, a show where we talk about what's going on in our culture and why it doesn't happen by accident. On this show, we talk a lot about fan culture, but there is one fan group that seems to get a lot of hate. I'll give you a hint. Their overlord is a rodent, and they are known to weep at the happiest place on earth. I'm talking about Disney adults. I saw the castle. This year, Disney celebrated its 100th birthday, and Disney adults have been crucial to keeping the magic alive. According to Business Insider, 40 to 50% of guests in Disney Orlando theme parks on any given day are child-free adults. Now, I myself am a child-free adult who's enjoyed a Disney park or two in my grown-up years, but I wouldn't classify myself as a Disney adult. I don't keep up with the movies, plan my vacations around the parks, or even subscribe to Disney+. Plus. Being a Disney adult, to me, requires a certain level of dedication that I just don't have in me. And it's that very dedication that has Disney adult haters very, very mad. But my next guest is here to defend the Disney adult and explain them, like why millennials are so poised to be them and why others are so ready to hate them. She's thought a lot about this because, well, she is a Disney adult. The artistry is just incredible. Like, oh my God, look at the fact that the bottom of the drunk pirate's foot on Pirates of the Caribbean is covered in dirt. Like, that's the kind of stuff that, like, Disney fans go wild over. This is E.J. Dixon, senior writer for Rolling Stone, who penned a deep dive about the world of Disney adults. She says her love for the happiest place on Earth started as a kid on trips with her family. That's the thing about Disney. The company knows how to age with you, from kid to adult to a parent with kids of their own. I mean, I don't want to go so far as to say they're going to get into like the funeral services business, <laughs> but they are very good at encouraging the lifelong process of fandom and really catering to audiences of all ages. And while I have yet to see a eulogizing Mickey, the fans are committed, but their critics are even louder Disney adults have been called cringe, immature, and childish. EJ even refers to Disney adults as the most hated group on the internet. So you know I had to find out what makes this fandom so controversial. And EJ was the perfect person to lay out why the Disney adult is so maligned and misunderstood. EJ, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. Okay, so... You say in your essay that you sort of identify as a Disney adult. You say that you feel more passionately <laughs> about the new genie and ride reservation system, which I have used. It's terrible. You feel more passionately about that than most voting reform legislation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was a joke. Obviously. <laughs> a lot of people, it's like more than one person yelled at me for that. Like, really? You're not a serious person. And I was oh, like, no, we're losing our humor yeah. society. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have used that system. It is horrible. It's horrible. 
you obviously have strong ties and opinions about Disney, but what made you want to write about capital D, capital A, Disney adults? I had seen the phrase go viral a number of times. There was sort of a subgenre of videos that I saw on TikTok of people making fun of Disney adults. Mm -hmm. There was this one video where this woman sort of like, it was very cringe where she like sees the castle and kind of falls to her knees and like reverence. And people were, you know, making fun of that. Uh Um, But it was this one, it was this one Reddit post on this subreddit called Am I the Asshole? Right, right. Where this um, bride, she was like, I am a Disney adult. We didn't have enough money for food and the characters. So I made my guests like go without food at my own wedding so we could have Mickey at our wedding. And everybody was apoplectic over it. They were like, this is the, the, the apotheosis of the Disney adult. Like this represents everything about like entitlement and millennial selfishness. And I thought it was a really interesting reaction because like, while, yes, I agree with that, um, I didn't think it was necessarily representative of the demographic as a whole, which I think is a lot less immature and a lot less entitled and intense than uh, would initially appear. Hmm. Hmm. I do remember that moment on social media when it was like everywhere on Twitter and everybody was like tearing it apart. Something that struck me was that like Disney had a huge hand in encouraging a Disney wedding. I don't know why this thought had never occurred to me before, but I guess I just assumed that like a Disney wedding was somebody, something that somebody asked to do, that like it was something like a very fan-driven thing. And maybe initially it was, but like Disney, they now have like packages and plans for Disney adults who wish to get married at a park to like make their wedding dreams come true. Like these weddings didn't just happen in like a fan vacuum, but also the response that people had to that Reddit post is also indicative of of like where our culture currently is, at least with, I mean, with weddings in general, especially with regard to, I feel like we're at a point where people really want to create a wedding experience that reflects their values and their interests and who they are as a couple You see people having Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings themed weddings, Twilight themed weddings, which is a choice. (laughs) You know, these Disney weddings are sort of hitting upon like two major aspects, millennial adult culture in America, which is like highly personalized and individualized wedding culture, but also like these really intense fandoms that people identify with, like there are still so many other fandoms to be a part of that people, maybe if they don't regard them with the same ire, but the fandoms are just as strong. I don't really see like what makes loving Mickey Mouse any more less sophisticated than loving Luke Skywalker, hmm. who is also a Disney property <laughs> now. But yeah, I, I so I, I think it's kind of an unfair perception. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a really good point. I mean, even if you don't feel that Disney fans should be scorned in the way that they are. I mean, the Disney adult fandom is it's very deeply scorned <laughs> in real life, on the internet. What makes that type of fandom so hated? Well, I think it's a couple things. I think some of the criticism is fair. I think some of it is less fair. I'll start with the criticism that I think is fair first. <laughs> I, there is a certain element of privilege Actually, there's an extreme element of privilege to being able to go on a Disney vacation and go to the Disney parks. They are not cheap. They are exorbitantly expensive and they are only becoming more so. There's this sense that like you're throwing your money, your hard-earned money away on something frivolous. 
And I think there's also an element of a very justifiable criticism of the company, which has in the past and arguably currently harbored some very regressive views about gender, Mm. race, sexuality. Mm -hmm. And the parks, to some extent, reflect that. They definitely reflect like a very regressive view of what it means to be an American and and, uh, specifically capitalist America. And I think that a lot of left-leaning people are justifiably very critical of that. And it's something that, you know, I feel like I have to reckon with in terms of my own fandom, too. And I think that plays into a huge part of why Disney adults are so reviled. The part that I don't think is fair is the fact that Marvel adults and Star Wars adults are taken more seriously Hmm. somehow or sports fans are taken more seriously. I think... Speak on that, because... A lot of that has to do with misogyny. I think a lot of it has to do with prioritizing quote-unquote male interests over female ones, Hmm. because a lot of people associate Disney with the princesses, and a lot of the fandom is female, although by no means all of the fandom. Like, I personally see no difference between being a Jets fan and being a Disney fan, except being a Disney fan is arguably more expensive and being a Jets fan is arguably more painful. (laughs) This is quite the spicy take. I don't think of it as any different than any other way, any other of the myriad ways that people escape reality. You note that while there have always been adult fans of Disney, you wrote... That the hatred toward Disney adults seem to be something that kind of starts with millennials, even the definition of Disney adults that you gave me today. Very millennial focused. I wonder what set up millennials to be the kinds of Disney adults that we know today? What are like the distinct generational markers that kind of like made all of that come together? Yeah, like I said earlier, I think a lot of it has to do with the sense of entitlement that people think millennials have. There's this whole stereotype that millennials like expect to get a good job and expect to without doing any work or expect to like be able to buy a house, even though they spend all their money on avocado toast. And there are many, many social and economic reasons why that stereotype isn't true. And I also think a lot of it just has to do with the timing of when I think that the Disney adult really started becoming a thing with the advent of social media Hmm. and uh, specifically Tumblr, like in the 2010s. That's really kind of where the term came from. So I think that the reason why it's associated with millennials is because the primary people who were engaging with the fandom were doing so on those platforms and were largely millennials for that reason. Mm-hmm. I also like have been thinking about like millennials and older Gen Z just experienced a lot of advertising. I was constantly exposed to advertising that was aimed specifically at my age group as like a young person. Like I have a niece who's five and <laughs> she never wants McDonald's <laughs> because she hasn't been really exposed. Like, she watches a lot of like streaming television, not interrupted by some sort of advertisement that's like directed at her. When I was a kid, I could tell you like what Happy Meal toys were at McDonald's at any given moment in time. And I was like begging my parents to take me there to get it. I even think about like, um, I don't know, like, like. We also experienced, like, a boom time for Disney. Like, we had this streak of great movies like Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Pocahontas, Lion King, Mulan, so on and so forth. Disney just loomed so culturally large. I wonder, like, do you think that that there are larger cultural forces at play that might have made 
millennials, possibly the first or maybe the only, but like the first generation of Disney adult to really like, I guess, hold on to the fandom and participate in the fandom in that way as grownups. I think social media played a huge role in encouraging participation. And that interactive activity that really became popular, like on Tumblr, I think that played a huge Mm -hmm. role. But I don't know if I necessarily agree with your contention that our generation was specifically aggressively marketed to by Disney. I mean, our generation was definitely aggressively marketed to by Disney because of the advent of the VCR and we could watch, you know, the movies from the vault like over, over and, and over, over again. again. Right, right, right. In a way previous durations couldn't. Yeah, they had this very clever marketing strategy where they would remove them from circulation and then reissue <laughs> them. And that was something that was happening when we were kids. It doesn't happen anymore. But I think that my son, who is six, is aggressively marketed to in exactly the same way that mm. I was, only only differently. He watches YouTube and his favorite channel is All Ears, which is these Disney vloggers. Oh. There's like this influencer network of people who like go to the parks and they do various challenges and he is obsessed with them. And I think that because, you know, the traditional media has been supplanted by the creator economy, that's really who's aggressively advertising to the next generation at this point. Like they're is this whole ecosystem of Disney influencers now that are recruiting a whole new generation of fans and doing it in some ways, like a lot more intensely than we were marketed to. Because he watches these videos all the time. He knows them all by name. He's got favorites. He, you know, knows about the park strategy. So I don't think the, I mean, while the advertising methods Uh have changed, I don't think it's gotten any less aggressive. I don't think, I I think it's, if anything, gotten more. Wow. I did not know about influencers that would be, making content about the parks for young children. But I mean, I I got one more question for you. I've been thinking a lot about like why there's such an attraction to being a Disney adult. It reminds me in some ways of how some people like practice religion. When I think about like the things that like practicing a religion can do, like put you in contact with other people, give you something that you can repeatedly find enjoyment in. Like, something that sets Disney apart is it also kind of has, like, a holy land that you can make a pilgrimage to. And also, like, as a company, Disney has pretty clear values that stretch all across its properties and movies and kind of remind me to a certain degree of, like, parables, like, stories that people can repeat that kind of preach those values over and over again. I wonder, like, I know that, you know, obviously you are a Disney adult and a Disney fan, but I wonder, like, the function of that, like, the function of being that connected to a fandom in that way. Does that resonate with you? Like, what do you think of that? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, it doesn't. It's fun for me. Going to the parks is fun. While I'm sure there are other people who see it differently, that is not how I see it. Well, EJ, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your fantastic article. You've given me a lot to think about with regard to Disney adults. Thank you. That was EJ Dixon, senior writer at Rolling Stone. Coming up... We honor Trans Day of Remembrance with a guest who's dedicated her life to putting Black trans folks first. Stay tuned. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right, a real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. 
Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. A warning to listeners, this next segment includes discussion of suicide, state violence, and hate crimes. For those who don't know, this past Monday was Trans Day of Remembrance. So in honor of that, I've got a very special guest. Her name is Raquel Willis, and she's one of the most influential Black trans activists of the digital age. She has an impressive resume that includes roles like national organizer for the Transgender Law Center and the executive editor of Out Magazine. She also co-founded the Transgender Week of Visibility and Action, and she helped organize one of the largest Black trans marches in modern history. Raquel Willis is among the first of a generation that honed its activism online. And in her new memoir, The Risk It Takes to Bloom, we see through her eyes how digital media influenced the struggle for Black trans lives. I had the pleasure of sitting down and talking with her about her journey. Raquel Willis, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thank you for having me, Brittany. I'm so excited. I'm excited that you're excited. Reading your book, one of the things that really struck me is that like your radicalization and your introduction to activism, even how you have made connections or moved through different activist spaces, happens in lockstep and is aided by the development of digital media, both social media and online journalism and discourse. You began your career as a journalist before you were an activist. You've always been a writer. I got to know of you and your work through social media where you're very active. I wonder, what is an early memory of yours of being online that helped you realize the internet and digital media's power as a tool for change? So the internet was always a pivotal part of my life. But I think that key moment where I kind of knew the power of it, I mean, definitely the start of Black Lives Matter, right? right. And the whole kind of discourse in 2013. But I think even beyond that, it was around August 2013 mm-hmm. when Elon Nettles, mm. a Black trans woman in New York, was murdered in the street after being catcalled. And that gave me images of like Black trans folks like Laverne Cox mm-hmm. and Janet Mock to see them rallying in the streets with other Black trans women in particular who were organizers in New York. Mm-hmm. That kind of gave me a deeper understanding of the importance of being outspoken as a Black trans woman mm. and the power that can come from letting the world know what's happening on the grassroots level. Mm, mm. 
Hmm. You know, it's interesting you bring up 2013 because that in your book, you present as a very pivotal year in your life. You are trying to navigate that post-college, like, what am I going to do? You're getting into a journalism career, but also the way you drew together the moments uh, around the murder of Trayvon Martin and also the murder of Elon Nettles, as you mentioned, a trans woman who was brutally murdered. These two young people were murdered only months apart. And though they were killed under very different circumstances, they each had a strong media reaction. I wonder, how did you process the media reaction to each of their deaths? And what did that say to you about your place in the world at that time? Yeah, I mean, I I think seeing how Trayvon Martin was depicted as animalistic Mm -hmm. or as deserving of his demise impacted me. And the fact that he was young, you know, and similarly, Elon Nettles was also young, Mm -hmm. right? And she was a Black trans woman. I have experienced the dehumanization of many different stripes of Blackness. Mm. So I have moved in the world as someone perceived as a Black boy, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As a Black trans woman who was emerging into her adulthood, what Elon Nettles was facing was something, of course, that was very close and visceral Mm. and connected to my experience at that point. Black trans people... Mm -hmm have this way of looking at the world in a prismatic manner hmm. that a lot of folks don't consider. It's interesting, you end the chapter where you discuss their deaths. You say, as I contemplated my future, I felt less confident I'd be able to forge a career and a life as openly as I had in college. You know, during your college years, you actually talk to your family and transition socially. You went to your family reunion and saw all your aunties and everything like that. And it kind of broke my heart to see that in 2013, you kind of felt like you had to dim your light a little bit in thinking about the realities of the world or even some of the harsh realities of the workplace. Talk to me about that moment and how you navigated that early phase of your professional career as a journalist. I think you're right. I think this is one of those moments in the book where it makes clear that my journey wasn't linear and that just because I had taken risks and been able to bloom before, it didn't mean that that kind of ended. It's kind of a continuous process. And I think that that's true for a lot of us in our lives. We also have to remember, I mean, 2013, not only was it the start of this kind of trans visibility era, we weren't even calling it that yet, right? Because that didn't really happen until 2014 when Laverne was on the cover of Time. So this was still kind of like a no man's land of like, (laughs) no man's land, of like trans visibility. I mean, this... I'll also say was a time period where because visibility for trans folks was not as much of a thing 
the goal was to get to a point where you could distance yourself as much as possible from your origin story, mm-hmm. where living stealth was the dream if you could do it. Mm, hmm, hmm. What you just described is reality for many people. And you do a beautiful job in the book of walking the reader through how you were thinking about managing your survival at that time and thinking about how you were trying to get resources and get ahead in your career and fulfill your dreams and goals at that time. But you ended up really sharing your origin story and more of the fullness of who you are with the world in a much bigger way with the death of Leela Alcorn a young trans girl who died by suicide and left a public suicide note. That was a big tipping point in the book for you where you felt called to respond in that moment. But the way in which you responded really changed the course of your life. Talk to me about that. Yeah. When Leela Alcorn died, I heeded her call because in that letter, she basically told adults to fix it, essentially to get our ish together because we're not creating a world where young people trans people like her feel like they can have a future. I started being more vocal online on the platform formerly known as Twitter and beyond. And it was a scary time. I mean, 2014 even, there weren't many openly trans folks sharing their stories online. Right. But you actually took it a step further. Like you came out on the BBC speaking up about her death. What was that like? Mm-hmm. I was a little nervous, but it felt like the right thing to do. Like mm-hmm. now, if I had that same scenario and I came out as trans, yeah, I probably would have experienced misgendering and all types of stuff, right? In a way that I didn't then because I I wasn't a part of a group that had as much of a target on us as we do now socially and politically. I don't know that a lot of trans young people in this time get to be just themselves if they're open about their experience. Hmm. Hmm. That's a really interesting point. It makes me think about how you talked a little bit about what some people called back in 2014 with Laverne Cox on the cover of Time Magazine and what people call in hindsight the transgender tipping point. But also there's a quote that I've seen shared time and time again on like the trans day of visibility on social media where people say visibility without safety can be a trap. It seems kind of like the increase in visibility, there's a lack of almost societal support and acceptance that's not meeting the representation where it's at. And it kind of creates this gap. Talk to me about how you see that moment looking back Mm. and what you noticed at the time that informed your activism going forward. I was thinking about, I think, the function of visibility at that time for trans folks. Hmm. In some ways, I think it made us more legible. I, I like saying legible as like, People understanding that we exist and that we have a, maybe a different experience than them. And when I say people, mm-hmm. I mean like the cisgender public. But I also just wonder with representation 
in general during this era because it was also the latter years of the Obama era. Hmm. How much of it is opening the door for large swaths of people who have diverse experiences or just positioning a certain package or palatability, Hmm. you know, Hmm. like, I don't know how much the representation of trans people in media change the everyday lives of the average trans folks out there. Hmm. When I think about how the everyday trans person is still misgendered, still not hired, Mm. still facing violence and discrimination, higher rates of incarceration than our peers across the board. I think about how much our society has not shifted and how much visibility actually was not enough. Hmm. Over the next few years, Raquel's career took leaps and bounds. She became a national organizer for the Transgender Law Center and got involved in the movement for Black Lives. But as she moved through these respective spaces, she noticed a fatal flaw. There was little, if any, acknowledgement of the people at the cross-sections of both of those identities. She'd have to be very careful of when she'd let her color show at work, and she was often disappointed at rallies for Black lives that didn't seem to acknowledge the loss of trans life that she was regularly confronted with. And while she was always pushing for this intersectional framework, it wasn't until the summer of 2020 that she really saw it reflected in the streets. You helped to organize what's been called the biggest march for Black trans lives in modern history. Uh, it was called Brooklyn Liberation, a march for Black trans lives. This was in June 2020. An estimated 15,000 people gathered in the streets in front of the Brooklyn Museum. And you spoke on that day. And mm-hmm. for those who haven't seen photos or footage of that time, the dress code was white and pearl, and the the blocks were just covered in people. And you spoke on that day. And in some ways, I see that as a culmination of a lot of the work that you've done for years. Mm-hmm. But you also say that it was a moment for you to finally let out some of the frustrations that you held in for years. And you gave a phenomenal yeah. speech. Talk to me about how you felt that day and what that was like. Well... I didn't have anything fully written out. I think a lot of the energy I would have had to come up with anything was kind of zapped as there was an attack on a young Black trans girl named Iana Dior in Minneapolis, right? Mm. There were the murders of two Black trans women that we learned about like 48 to 72 hours before the march. One was a Black trans woman who was dismembered Hmm. and her body was left in the river. Dominique Remy Fells and Raya Melton. I mean, both of those murders, I think, put a new light on the action that we were doing. Mm -hmm. And I think what hurt me the most was that even in the midst of the world supposedly shutting down, People Mm. still found time and had the energy to kill Black trans women. As folks started to trickle in that day at the Brooklyn Museum, I mean, they just kept coming. I mean, and the whole team, impeccable. Like, hands down, one of the best organizing 
Cruz, one of the best organized actions ever. And it was beautiful to share that experience with so many peers that I had known in New York. But as I reached the dais, I think all the the energy left my body. Hmm. And I just took a deep breath and I just let everything course through me and it all just like hit me. I just... We have been told that we are not enough to parents, to lovers, to organizations. You know, I just thought about all the trans folks, Black trans folks, people of color throughout time who had felt unheard. Marsha P. Johnson dying unceremoniously. You know, people put Marsha up on this pedestal. They never talk about how we don't know what happened to her, what led to her demise. Sylvia Rivera rallying on about this nonprofit infrastructure. I can't tell you how many of these mostly white organizations have us in their line items for their grant proposals, and they have us in the rhetoric of their speeches. And I want to know, when is the money and the resources going to keep us alive? And I was thinking how hardly anything was different now, 20 years since her death. I mean, you started off your speech that day saying, I'm going to talk to my Black trans folks and model what it looks like to put us first. (laughs) I mean, I thought that was like, I mean, I thought that was a great way to start off. It also seems like through the journey that you take in the book, a teenager or really a little kid to a teenager to, you know, college girl, young journalist, activist, magazine editor. It seems like that is kind of like the politic that you arrived at by the end. Like that is kind of like a summation, (laughs) modeling what it looks like to put us first. What does that look like to you now, three years later? What does that look like to you now? It's hard. I think three years later, the landscape socially and politically is different. Hmm. You know, I think that there was kind of a reorienting back to seeing transness as purely a white phenomenon. I think that we have kind of moved back into this idea that Black trans folks don't exist, particularly in the news and in the media. Because when I think about the attacks on trans folks in terms of legislation, overwhelmingly, when we're talking about the trans youth we want to protect, folks Mm -hmm. are thinking about white American youth. Hmm. You know, they're thinking about even the worst narratives about trans people, like this idea that we have an agenda and we're out to get your kids. They're thinking about white youth being at risk. I mean, I think I've shifted a bit in my lens. Of course, Black trans folks are always at the center for me, but Mm -hmm. I think when I'm articulating this vision to other folks, it's been more about getting cis folks to understand that the patriarchy is failing them too. It's Hmm. not just failing us. About getting Black folks to understand that we're inherently gender nonconforming, whether you're trans or not, because 
we will never fit into this idealistic idea of manhood and womanhood within Mm. our white supremacist capitalist structure. You were never made for that, boo-boo. So you got to let that go so we can actually move towards collective liberation (laughs) amongst Black folk. Mm. Raquel, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you coming and speaking with about your very, very rich text of a book. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be able to share it with the world. That was Raquel Willis. Her memoir, The Risk It Takes to Bloom, is out now. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, call or text the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu with Black Twitter, A People's History from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, Black Twitter, A People's History tells the story of how Black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. You don't just live in your home, you live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, Homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, local amenities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework. This message comes from NPR sponsor Made in Cookware. Did you know that many popular dishes in Tom Colicchio's craft restaurant are made in Made in Cookware? Made in supplies chefs with high-end cookware because Made in makes exactly what demanding chefs look for. When you level up your cooking, remember what great dishes on menus worldwide have in common. They're Made in Maiden. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from the 18th until the 27th. Visit MadeInCookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N Cookware.com. This message comes from The Run-Through with Vogue. Listen as designers, Vogue editors, and industry icons like Erica Badu and Florence Pugh have in-depth conversations about fashion and culture. New episodes are released each Thursday wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hi, my name is Brian. And I was just wondering if you saw the news that they're going to make a new Edith Piaf movie using AI. I think it's a little creepy, maybe sacrilegious. Thanks. Oh my gosh, Brian, thank you so much for calling in. Mm -mm -mm. This has been on my mind. This is the thing, okay? Edith Piaf, wonderful singer, very interesting life story haunting music that has really fed us for decades, nearly a century. But she has been dead since 1963. And for some reason, both her estate and Warner Music have decided to use animation and archival footage to put what they're calling, you know, some sort of modern spin on, you know, her life story. 
And this is stressing me out, okay? First of all, I don't want to see AI-generated images. Have y'all seen some of those AI-generated images? People with eight, nine fingers on one hand. AI is not where it needs to be, I think, in order to really pull off an entire film. The other thing I think about is like what an obvious like test case this feels like for one of the biggest struggles that actors and writers were tussling with during their respective strikes this past year. You know, there was a big, big, big sticking point for both groups of creators having to do with their ability to push back against an industry that wants to move toward AI-generated images, scripts, movies, wholesale. Um, <laughs> all of those are jobs done by people. And I think people are doing a pretty good job and have done a pretty good job with that for like the past 150 years. And I kind of would like to keep it that way. The same way that like AI can help you generate something nice to write in a greeting card when you kind of are stumped as to what to say. That I think can maybe work out okay. But like creating an entire cinematic world with a computer, I don't get it. It just seems like a money grab to me. I think about like Tupac's hologram or that Whitney Houston song that came out like Take Me to Higher Love or whatever a couple years ago and became a huge hit. There's something that feels a little bit ghastly sometimes about like seeing an artist posthumously participating in something that I don't think they wanted us to see or we don't actually even know how they would feel about it. Something about it just feels so weird and like kind of engineered for our enjoyment as opposed to like a testament to their life and legacy. And me, myself, personally, I just don't like to play in that kind of dark magic. Thank you so much for calling in with this question. I hope that you have a wonderful holiday weekend and um, beware the AI. If you have a thought or question about pop culture, send us a voice memo at ibam at npr.org. That's I-B-A-M at npr.org. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood, Alexis Williams, Liam McBain, Corey Antonio Rose. Our editor is Jessica Plachek. Engineering support came from Phil Edfors. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of programming is Anya Grundman. All right, that's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.